Book One, Chapter One, Part Four of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For two years no syllable was heard of him. It was believed that he had killed himself, but Vanamee had no thought of that. For two years he wandered through Arizona, living in the desert, in the wilderness, a recluse, a nomad, an ascetic. But doubtless all his heart was in the little coffin in the mission garden. Once in so often he must come back thither. One day he was seen again in the San Joaquin. The priest, Father Saria, returning from a visit to the sick at Bonneville, met him on the upper road. Eighteen years had passed since Angele had died, but the thread of Vanamy's life had been snapped. Nothing remained now but the tangled ends. He had never forgotten. The long, dull ache, the poignant grief had now become a part of him. Presley knew this to be so. While Presley had been reflecting upon all this, Vanamy had continued to speak. Presley, however, had not been wholly inattentive. While his memory was busy reconstructing the details of the drama of the shepherd's life, another part of his brain had been swiftly registering picture after picture that Vanamy's monotonous flow of words struck off, as it were, upon a steadily moving scroll. The music of the unfamiliar names that occurred in his recital was a stimulant to the poet's imagination. Presley had the poet's passion for expressive, sonorous names. As these came and went in Vanamy's monotonous undertones, like little notes of harmony in a musical progression, he listened, delighted with their resonance. Navajo, Quijotoa, Winta, Sonora, Laredo, Uncampagre. To him they were so many symbols. It was his west that passed, unrolling there before the eye of his mind. The open, heat-scourged ground of desert, the mesa like a vast altar, shimmering purple in the royal sunset, the still gigantic mountains heaving into the sky from out the canyons, the strenuous, fierce life of isolated towns, lost and forgotten, down there, far off, below the horizon. Abruptly his great poem, his song of the West, leaped up again in his imagination. For the moment he all but held it. It was there, close at hand. In another instant he would grasp it. Yes, yes, he exclaimed. I can see it all, the desert, the mountains, all wild, primordial, untamed. How I should have loved to have been with you. Then perhaps I should have got hold of my idea. Your idea? the great poem of the West. It's that which I want to write. Oh, to put it all into hexameters, strike the great iron note, sing the vast, terrible song, the song of the people, the forerunners of empire. Vanamee understood him perfectly. He nodded gravely. Yes, it is there. It is life, the primitive, simple, direct life, passionate, tumultuous. Yes, there is an epic there. Presley caught at the word. It had never before occurred to him. Epic! Yes, that's it. It is the epic I'm searching for. And how I search for it. You don't know. It is sometimes almost an agony. Often and often I can feel it right there, there at my fingertips. But I never quite catch it. It always eludes me. I was born too late. 
Ah, to get back to that first clear-eyed view of things, to see as Homer saw, as Beowulf saw, as the Nimbalungan's poets saw. The life is here, the, the same as then, the, the, the poem is here, my West is here, the primeval, epic life is here, here under our hands, in the desert, in the mountain, on the ranch, all over here, from Winnipeg to Guadalupe. It is the man who is lacking, the poet. We have been educated away from it all. We are out of touch. We are out of tune. Vanamee heard him to the end, his grave, sad face thoughtful and attentive. Then he rose. I am going over to the mission, he said, to see Father Saria. I have not seen him yet. How about the sheep? The dogs will keep them in hand, and I shall not be gone long. Besides that, I have a boy here to help. He is over yonder on the other side of the herd. You can't see him from here. Presley wondered at the heedlessness of leaving the sheep so slightly guarded, but made no comment, and the two started off across the field in the direction of the mission church. Well, yes, it is there, your epic, observed Vanamee as they went along. But uh, why write? Why not live in it? steep oneself in the heat of the desert the glory of the sunset the the blue haze of the mesa and the canyon as you have done for instance vanamee nodded no i i could not do that declared presley i want to go back but not so far as you i feel that i must compromise i must find expression i could not lose myself like that in your desert when its vastness overwhelmed me, or its beauty dazzled me, or its loneliness weighed down upon me, I should have to record my impressions. Otherwise, I should suffocate. Each to his own life, observed Vanamee. The mission of San Juan, built of brown dobe blocks covered with yellow plaster that at many points had dropped away from the walls, stood on the crest of a low rise of the ground, facing to the south. A covered colonnade, paved with round, worn bricks, from whence opened the doors of the abandoned cells once used by the monks, adjoined it on the left. The roof was of tiled half-cylinders, split longitudinally, and laid in alternate rows, now concave, now convex. The main body of the church itself was at right angles to the colonnade, and at the point of intersection rose the belfry tower, an ancient campanile, where swung the three cracked bells, the gift of the King of Spain. Beyond the church was the mission garden and the graveyard that overlooked the seed ranch in a little hollow beyond. Presley and Vanamee went down the long colonnade to the last door next the belfry tower, and Vanamee pulled the leather thong that hung from a hole in the door, setting a little bell jangling somewhere in the interior. The place, but for this noise, was shrouded in a Sunday stillness, an absolute repose. Only at intervals one heard the trickle of the unseen fountain and the liquid cooing of doves in the garden. Father Saria opened the door. He was a small man, somewhat stout, with a smooth and shiny face. He wore a frock coat that was rather dirty, slippers, and an old yachting cap of blue cloth with a broken leather visor. He was smoking a cheap cigar, very fat and black but instantly he recognized Vanamee. His face went all alight with pleasure and astonishment. 
It seemed as if he would never have finished shaking both his hands, and as it was he released but one of them, patting him affectionately on the shoulder with the other. He was voluble in his welcome, talking partly in Spanish, partly in English. So he had come back again, this great fellow, tanned as an Indian, lean as an Indian, with an Indian's long black hair. But he had not changed, not in the very least. His beard had not grown an inch. Ah, <laughs> the rascal, never to give warning, to drop down as it were from the sky. Such a hermit! To live in the desert, a veritable Saint Jerome. Did a lion feed him down there in Arizona? Or was it a raven like Elijah? The good God had not fattened him at any rate, and apropos, he was just about to dine himself. He had made a salad from his own lettuce. The two would dine with him. For this, my son, that was lost, is found again. But Presley excused himself. Instinctively, he felt that Saria and Vanamee wanted to talk of things concerning which he was an outsider. It was not at all unlikely that Vanamee would spend half the night before the high altar in the church. He took himself away, his mind still busy with Vanamee's extraordinary life and character. But as he descended the hill, he was startled by a prolonged and raucous cry, discordant, very harsh, thrice repeated at exact intervals. And looking up, he saw one of Father Saria's peacocks balancing himself upon the topmost wire of the fence, his long tail trailing, his neck outstretched, filling the air with his stupid outcry for no reason than the desire to make a noise. About an hour later, toward four in the afternoon, Presley reached the spring at the head of the little canyon in the northeast corner of the Quin Sabe Ranch, the point toward which he had been traveling since early in the forenoon. The place was not without its charm. Innumerable live oaks overhung the canyon, and Broderson Creek, there a mere rivulet, running down from the spring, gave a certain coolness to the air. It was one of the few spots thereabout that had survived the dry season of the last year. Nearly all the other springs had dried completely, while Mission Creek on Derrick's ranch was nothing better than a dusty cutting in the ground, filled with brittle concave flakes of dried and sun-cracked mud. Presley climbed to the summit of one of the hills, the highest, that rose out of the canyon, from the crest of which he could see for thirty, fifty, sixty miles down the valley, and filling his pipe smoked lazily for upwards of an hour his head empty of thought, allowing himself to succumb to a pleasant, gentle inanition, oh, a little drowsy, comfortable in his place, prone upon the ground, warmed just enough by such sunlight as filtered through the live oaks, soothed by the good tobacco and the prolonged murmur of the spring and crick. By degrees, the sense of his own personality became blunted, the little wheels and cogs of thought moved slower and slower. Consciousness dwindled to a point. The animal in him stretched itself, purring. A delightful numbness invaded his mind and his body. He was not asleep, he was not awake, stupefied merely, lapsing back to the state of the fawn, the satyr. After a while, arousing himself a little, he shifted his position, and drawing from the pocket of his shooting-coat his little tree-calf edition of the Odyssey, read far into the twenty-first book, where, after the failure of all the suitors to bend Ulysses' bow, 
it is finally put, with mockery, into his own hands. Abruptly, the drama of the story roused him from all his languor. In an instant he was the poet again, his nerves tingling, alive to every sensation, responsive to every impression. The desire of creation, of composition, grew big within him. Hexameters of his own clamored, tumultuous, in his brain. Not for a long time had he felt his poems, as he called this sensation, so poignantly. For an instant he told himself that he actually held it. It was, no doubt, Vanamy's talk that had stimulated him to this point. The story of the long trail with its desert and mountain, its cliff-dwellers, its Aztec ruins, its color, movement, and romance, filled his mind with picture after picture. The epic defiled before his vision like a pageant. Once more he shot a glance about him, as if in search of the inspiration, and this time he all but found it. He rose to his feet, looking out and off below him. As from a pinnacle, Presley, from where he now stood, dominated the entire country. The sun had begun to set. Everything in the range of his vision was overlaid with a sheen of gold. First, close at hand, it was the seed ranch, carpeting the little hollow behind the mission with a spread of greens, some dark, some vivid, some pale, almost a yellowness. Beyond that was the mission itself, its venerable campanile, in whose arches hung the Spanish king's bells, already glowing ruddy in the sunset. Further on he could make out Annixter's ranch house, marked by the skeleton-like tower of the artesian well, and a little farther to the east, the huddled, tiled roofs of Guadalajara. Far to the west and north he saw Bonneville very plain, and the dome of the courthouse, a purple silhouette against the glare of the sky. Other points detached themselves, swimming in a golden mist, projecting blue shadows far before them. The mammoth live oak by Hoovens, towering superb and magnificent, the line of eucalyptus trees behind which he knew was the Los Muertos ranch house, his home, the watering tank, the great iron hoop tower of wood that stood at the joining of the lower road and the county road, the long wind-break of poplar trees and the white walls of Carraher's saloon on the county road. But all this seemed to be only foreground, a mere array of accessories, a mass of irrelevant details. Beyond Annixter's, beyond Guadalajara, beyond the lower road, beyond Broderson Creek, on to the south and west, infinite, illimitable, stretching out there under the sheen of the sunset forever and forever, vast, flat, unbroken, a huge scroll unrolling between the horizons, spread the great stretches of the ranch of Los Muertos, bare of crops, shaved close in the recent harvest. Near at hand were hills, but on that far southern horizon only the curve of the great earth itself checked the view. Adjoining Los Muertos, and widening to the west, opened the Broderson Ranch. The Osterman Ranch, to the northwest, carried on the great sweep of landscape, ranch after ranch. Then, as the imagination itself expanded under the stimulus of that measureless range of vision, even those great ranches resolved themselves into mere foreground, mere accessories, irrelevant details. Beyond the fine line of the horizons, 
over the curve of the globe, the shoulder of the earth, were other ranches, equally vast, and beyond these, others, and beyond these, still others, the immensities multiplying, lengthening out vaster and vaster. The whole gigantic sweep of the San Joaquin expanded, titanic, before the eye of the mind, flagellated with heat, quivering and shimmering under the sun's red eye. At long intervals, a faint breath of wind out of the south passed slowly over the levels of the baked and empty earth, accentuating the silence, marking off the stillness. It seemed to exhale from the land itself, a prolonged sigh as of deep fatigue. It was the season after the harvest, and the great earth, the mother, after its period of reproduction, its pains of labor, delivered of the fruit of its loins, slept the sleep of exhaustion, the infinite repose of the Colossus, benignant, eternal, strong, the nourisher of nations, the feeder of an entire world. Ha! There it was, his epic, his inspiration, his west, his thundering progression of hexameters. A sudden uplift, a sense of exhilaration, of physical exaltation, appeared abruptly to sweep Presley from his feet, as from a point high above the world, he seemed to dominate a universe, a whole order of things. He was dizzied, stunned, stupefied, his morbid, supersensitive mind reeling, drunk with the intoxication of mere immensity. Stupendous ideas for which there were no names drove headlong through his brain. Terrible, formless shapes, vague figures, gigantic, monstrous, distorted, whirled at a gallop through his imagination. He started homeward, still in his dream, descending from the hill, emerging from the canyon, and took the short cut straight across the Quien Sabe Ranch, leaving Guadalajara far to his left. He tramped steadily on through the wheat stubble, walking fast, his head in a whirl. Never had he so nearly grasped his inspiration as at that moment on the hilltop. Even now, though the sunset was fading, though the wide reach of valley was shut from sight, it still kept him company. Now the details came thronging back, the component parts of his poem, the signs and symbols of the West. It was there, close at hand. He had been in touch with it all day. It was in the centenarian's vividly colored reminiscences, de la Cuesta, holding his grant from the Spanish crown, with his power of life and death, the romance of his marriage, the white horse with its pillion of red leather and silver bridle mountings, the bullfights in the plaza, the gifts of gold dust and horses and tallow. It was in Vanamy's strange history, the tragedy of his love. Angele Varian, with her marvellous loveliness, the Egyptian fullness of her lips, the perplexing upward slant of her violet eyes, bizarre, oriental, her white forehead made three-cornered by her plaits of gold hair. The mystery of the other, her death at the moment of her child's birth. It was in Vanamy's flight into the wilderness, the story of the long trail, the sunsets behind the altar-like mesas, the baking desolation of the deserts, the strenuous, fierce life of forgotten towns, down there, far off, lost below the horizons of the southwest, the sonorous music of unfamiliar names. Quijotoa, Winta, Sonora, Laredo, Uncompagre, 
It was in the mission with its cracked bells, its decaying walls, its venerable sundial, its fountain and old garden, and in the mission fathers themselves, the priests, the padres, planting the first wheat and oil and wine to produce the elements of the sacrament, a trinity of great industries taking their rise in a religious rite. Abruptly, as if in confirmation, Presley heard the sound of a bell from the direction of the mission itself. It was the De Profundis, a note of the old world, of the ancient regime, an echo from the hillsides of medieval Europe, sounding there in this new land, unfamiliar and strange in this end-of-the-century time. By now, however, it was dark. Presley hurried forward. He came to the line fence of the Quien Sabe Ranch. Everything was very still. The stars were all out. There was not a sound other than the De Profundis, still sounding from very far away. At long intervals, the great earth sighed dreamily in its sleep. All about the feeling of absolute peace and quiet and security and untroubled happiness and content seemed descending from the stars like a benediction. The beauty of his poem, its idyll, came to him like a caress that alone had been lacking. It was that, perhaps, which had left it hitherto incomplete. At last he was to grasp his song in all its entity. But suddenly there was an interruption. Presley had climbed the fence at the limit of the Quien Sabe Ranch. Beyond was Los Muertos, but between the two ran the railroad. He had only time to jump back upon the embankment, when, with a quivering of all the earth, a locomotive, single, unattached, shot by him with a roar, filling the air with a reek of hot oil, vomiting smoke and sparks, its enormous eye, cyclopean, red, throwing a glare far in advance, shooting by in a sudden crash of confused thunder, filling the night with a terrific clamor of its iron hooves. Abruptly, Presley remembered. This must be the crack passenger engine of which Dyke had told him, the one delayed by the accident on the Bakersfield division, and for whose passage the track had been opened all the way to Fresno. Before Presley could recover from the shock of the eruption, while the earth was still vibrating, the rails still humming, the engine was far away, flinging the echo of its frantic gallop over all the valley. For a brief instant it roared like a hollow diapason on the long trestle over Broderson Creek, then plunged into a cutting further on, the quivering glare of its fires losing itself in the night, its thunder rapidly diminishing to a subdued and distant humming. All at once this ceased. The engine was gone. But the moment the noise of the engine lapsed, Presley, about to start forward again, was conscious of a confusion of lamentable sounds that rose into the night from out the engine's wake. Prolonged cries of agony, sobbing wails of infinite pain, heart-rending, pitiful. The noises came from a little distance. He ran down the track, crossing the culvert over the irrigating ditch, and at the head of the long reach of track, between the culvert and the long trestle, paused abruptly, held immovable at the sight of the ground and the rails all around him. In some way, a herd of sheep, Vanamy's herd, had found a breach in the wire fence by the right-of-way and had wandered out onto the tracks. A band had been crossing just at the moment of the engine's passing. 
The pathos of it was beyond expression. It was a slaughter, a massacre of innocence. The iron monster had charged full into the midst, merciless, inexorable. To the right and left, all the width of the right-of-way, the little bodies had been flung. Backs were snapped against the fence-post, brains knocked out. Caught in the barbs of the wire, wedged in, the bodies hung suspended. Underfoot it was terrible, the black blood winking in the starlight, seeping down into the clinkers between the ties with a prolonged sucking murmur. Presley turned away, horror-struck, sick at heart, overwhelmed with a quick burst of irresistible compassion for this brute agony he could not relieve. The sweetness was gone from the evening, the sense of peace, of security and placid contentment was stricken from the landscape. The hideous ruin in the engine's path drove all thought of his poem from his mind. The inspiration vanished like a mist. The De Profundis had ceased to ring. He hurried on across the Los Muertos ranch, almost running, even putting his hands over his ears till he was out of hearing distance of that all but human distress. Not until he was beyond earshot did he pause, looking back, listening. The night had shut down again. For a moment the silence was profound, unbroken. Then, faint and prolonged, across the levels of the ranch, he heard the engine whistling for Bonneville. Again and again, at rapid intervals in its flying course, it whistled for road crossings, for sharp curves, for trestles, ominous notes hoarse, bellowing, ringing with the accents of menace and defiance. And abruptly Presley saw again in his imagination the galloping monster, the terror of steel and steam with its single eye, cyclopean, red, shooting from horizon to horizon. But saw it now as the symbol of a vast power, Huge, terrible, flinging the echo of its thunder over all the reaches of the valley, leaving blood and destruction in its path. The Leviathan, with tentacles of steel clutching into the soil, the soulless force, the iron-hearted power, the monster, the colossus, the octopus. End of Book One, Chapter One